Before we turn to the sermon, I did want to stop for a few moments and just make some pastoral observations, some pastoral reflections on the Roe v. Wade overturning uh, that happened about a week ago last Friday. So I thought about saying something last week, but didn't want to rush it, wanted to see how the week unfolded, and so I'm bringing them to you this week. Obviously, the decision has been all over the news and social media. Uh, Many are celebrating nearly 50 years of uh, hard-fought efforts. Many others are mourning and grieving as a consequence of the decision. And still others, a few, have responded with anger and outright violence. And my desire is not to address this really from a political perspective, right or left, so much as a Christian one. And I just want to make four pastoral observations to help us in this season. And the first is this. As we talk about this decision with others, as we dialogue with others, we must remember we're talking about lives, not just legal decisions. It's about people, right, not simply policy. So Roe has left many victims in its wake. It's estimated that about one out of every four American women will have an abortion during their lifetime. And the lingering questions, the shame, the pain, the regret, many women and even men involved in those decisions, right? they never get past it. They struggle to move beyond it. And some of you right now listening to my voice know exactly what I'm talking about. You've had an abortion or you've participated or facilitated or encouraged one. You know, maybe you felt that pregnancy was an inconvenience that you didn't know how to bear. Or maybe you were scared and felt trapped and believed that an abortion was the only way out. Or maybe, as tragically it all too often happens, you were coerced, even against your will, to have an abortion. In any case, whatever it might be, those wounds run deep and those wounds never fully heal. So first and most importantly, if I'm speaking to you, what I want to communicate to you on behalf of the gospel and as a Christian minister is that there is forgiveness. There is wonderful forgiveness, full, all-encompassing, all-embracing forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Abortion is not the unpardonable sin. There is no sin that the blood of Christ cannot cover. Paul himself presided over the execution of Stephen in Acts. He worked to have Christians rounded up and sentenced to death. And yet God would take Paul, as we've seen these last weeks, and turn him into the one and greatest displays of his glory and power. And friends, if he can do that in Paul's life, he can do that in your life. Even think of King David. He had Uriah murdered to cover his own adulterous tracks. And yet even David has said twice in the scriptures to be a man after God's own heart. From the same can be said of you. Some of you may need to hear there's forgiveness in Christ for the very first time. That Christ died on the cross for sinners. For every sinner that sees their need and turns from their sin and repents in him. His blood 
It washes away, it cleanses us from every blood-stained sin on our hands. And his blood, friend, can do that for you. And yet some of us may need to step back in a time like this and remember that in as much as we are fighting for the protection of unborn life, we are also, remember, fighting for the restoration of those women who have taken lives. We're concerned for them too. Roe has left many scars on our own nation. Our job is not just to shout triumphantly now from the rooftops, but we need as well to stand prepared, right, on the street corner perhaps, or even on a couch with words of gospel grace and compassion to those women who continue to live as Roe's victims. So that's the first thing I want to note. The second thing I want to note is that it is appropriate to rejoice in this moment, right? Laws teach. Some will say you can't legislate morality. Friend, that is a naive thing to say. Behind every law lies a moral judgment. So our laws will incentivize things like marriage and savings and home ownership because as a nation we said those things are good and the laws will penalize those things like murder and theft because we say such things are bad. Now, the original 1973 Roe decision reflected a moral judgment on the life of the unborn, namely that unborn babies were not worthy of life. And so for the nearly past 50 years, roughly 63 million children have been killed. 63 million image bearers with full dignity and rights and untold potential. The fact that the Supreme Court overturned that flawed decision based on poor reasoning and invented rights nowhere enumerated in the Constitution, that is a good thing. It is an unmitigated good, and we should thank God for it. And we should recognize that many, again, have been praying and working and laboring nearly 50 years for this day. And it's appropriate as a consequence of that ruling to rejoice that fewer babies will be aborted. But thirdly, notice I said fewer babies because the Supreme Court didn't ban abortions nationwide. Right To quote Justice Kavanaugh in the ruling, to be clear then, the court's decision today does not outlaw abortion throughout the United States. On the contrary, the court's decision properly leaves the question of abortion for the people and their elected representatives. In other words, that decision returns the question of abortion to the states, which means the pro-life movement isn't over. Far from it. The pro-life movement is simply entering into a new phase, which means it is important and incumbent upon us now to be praying for state legislatures. Thankfully, Arkansas, through its duly elected representatives, has implemented a law that, quote, prohibits all abortions except in the case of the life of the mother in a medical emergency. But friends, it's going to be important to pray for other states. Nearly 50% of Americans live in states today that protect abortion rights and may even go further than that and seek to become abortion sanctuaries that profit off the practice. Practically, 
It means it remains on us, even as we pray, also as individuals who uphold the sanctity of all human life, to engage and to seek to persuade others of the damage and destruction that abortion wreaks, not just on society at large, but on women in particular. Right, so in the public square, we want to winsomely win them over to a culture of life as we also combat a culture of death. We want to do both of those things. And fourthly and lastly, the reversal of Roe therefore does present a critical opportunity and responsibility for us as a church. Because the closing of abortion clinics will mean that, yes, fewer babies are aborted. And it will therefore also mean that there will be more scared mothers in dire need, right? Dire need of assistance, dire need of help, dire need of love. And friends, that's where Christians have always stepped in, right? From the first century Christians who rescued abandoned Roman babies on roadsides to 19th century Christians like George Muller, who cared for over 10,000 through his orphanages, to local ministries like Loving Choices, Compassion House, The Call. Right? This is an opportunity for our Christian witness not merely to be seen and heard, but to be personally felt, to be personally experienced, because it's really easy to cheer a SCOTUS decision from afar, but it is another thing for those same convictions of life to be borne out in our own lives. And if the reporting of this last week is any indication, this won't be easy. But in the words of Peter's exhortation from 1 Peter 2, live such good lives among the pagans that though they slander you as doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So friends, let's praise God for the decision. And let's now pray and work so we're sure to be there and to meet the needs as they come. Let me pray for us before we turn to the word. Oh God, we do pray. And if there are ways in which we have been wrongfully triumphant during this season, oh God, we pray you'd convict us. If there are ways in which we have been wrongfully complacent and have been uncaring, Lord, we know how you care and how you care for the least among the people, how you seek to protect and to provide. And God, we care that our hearts would more reflect your hearts not just in the positions we hold, but in the manner in which we hold them. Oh God, we pray that as a congregation, we would cherish and celebrate all life in ways consistent with your character and consistent with your word. Lord, give us clarity. Lord, give us strength. Give us unity as we pursue that together as a congregation, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Turning to 2 Corinthians. Division, friends, we, we see it all about us. Right? So the decision of Roe, as we were just discussing, that, that represents some of the great moral divides in our own country. The January 6th hearings, right? they reveal some of the great political divides in our country. Conversations around inflation highlight many of the great economic divides among us. And though our country is more racially diverse than ever, George Floyd, the growth of the BLM, AAPI movements, reveal the persistent racial divides 
that still exist in this country. And friends, of course, churches, sadly, they haven't been spared such divisions. All right, so back in the 19th century, many churches split over the question of slavery. And those same denominations, denominations in the 20th century would go on, many of them, and split over the Bible. And those churches that kept the Bible into the 80s and 90s, what did they do? They tended to split over what? The worship wars. And of course, many that survived the worship wars are now succumbing to what? They're succumbing to the COVID wars. Right? Do we wear masks or not? Should we engage in civil disobedience and gather or not? Should we Zoom our services or not? And then there's the, right, the proverbial Fauci-ouchie, right? We've joked about that. Do we get it or not? Do we become vaxies and take our, take our vaccinations to celebrate them as we become part of the vaccinado, right? All the jokes, right? Is that, that's the kind of thing, that humorous side, right? That's exactly what's actually dividing many churches today. You know, evidenced in a recent poll that revealed that church division This question of church division is, in fact, the number one concern of pastors today. And it's the number one reason, apparently, pastors are leaving ministry, and the number one reason we read that churches are, in fact, closing their doors. So, friends, what do we make of that as a congregation? How do we not become simply another statistic of division? Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're in verses 2 through verse 7. And if you don't have a Bible, we provide them in the seat back before you. You can find our text on page 967. Page 967. And if you are just joining us for the holiday weekend, holidays are times when a lot of our people are gone. Some other folks tend to join. Right? If you're joining us, the Apostle Paul, he visited Corinth, his second missionary journey, He he preached there, rather. He planted a church. He pastored that church for nearly two years. And then eventually he would move on. And yet after Paul left, that church, as we've seen, it began to what? It began to flounder. And many of these young Christians struggled to break away from their past. They wanted the church life, but they also wanted their Corinthian lives. They wanted to gather for meals at one of the many local temples and yet then pretend to gather as a temple of the Holy Spirit on the Lord's Day. They had become, as we saw last week, they become unequally yoked. They had formed, in other words, those kind of close attachments with the world that led them to compromise their faith. And that was driving a deep wedge between Paul and this congregation that he so loved. And so for the past chapters, Paul has been at pains to defend his ministry and bring reconciliation to that body, which brings us to chapter 2, verse 7. We pick up there, chapter 2, verse 7. Paul writes, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast 
comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. We're going to stop there in verse 7. So as we think about our passage this morning, I want us to think about it in three movements. Three movements. First, just this note that division demands affection. Division demands affection. And then second, that ministry entails affliction. Ministry entails affliction. And then third and lastly, God provides consolation. God provides consolation. So division demands affection. That's going to be verses really two through four. And then ministry entails affliction. We'll see that very clearly in verse five. And then God provides consolation, verses six and seven. So first, ministry or rather division, I should say. First, division demands affection. Division demands affection. Again, the church in Corinth was on the verge of a split. It's a church that's been splintering into various factions. We read even of the early stages of that back in 1 Corinthians 1. And it seems Paul is the wedge that's at the center of it all. Which is why Paul, since chapter 2, has been at pains to defend his ministry among them. And what's the solution Paul starts to press that to these divisions in the body. The irony, of course, in 1 Corinthians 12 is he said there were to be no divisions in the body, right? But there are. What is the solution? It begins, Paul says, with affection. It's a heart posture. Paul calls these Corinthians in verse 2 what? Make room in your hearts for us. And if that's similar, it sounds Very much like chapter 6, verse 13, we looked at last week, where Paul said, widen your hearts, right, so that they might receive Paul. You know, for years, the Cheyenne Military Mountain bunker there uh, in Cheyenne, right outside uh, Colorado Springs, that military bunker is housed two of the largest doors in the world. Each of those doors weighing over 25 tons each. Those doors can withstand a 30-megaton blast, which doesn't mean anything to me, but basically, if you were to take 1,500 of those fat man bombs that were dropped in Nagasaki, right, in Nagasaki, it would take 1,500 of those to form just a crack in those doors. And given that those doors are also buried about 2,000 feet into this mountain, much of which is granite, makes those doors basically impenetrable. And of course, that was the whole point. It was meant to be a military bunker in case of a nuclear holocaust. And I bring that up to say Paul is saying to these Corinthians that those bunker doors are a lot like your hearts. Closed off, walled off, walls and doors that seem impenetrable. They will not let Paul in. And Paul is asking them to open the doors of their hearts to him while they shut those doors to false teachers and idolatry in their midst. And it's an interesting expression, right? Because it's actually a command. Make room or widen your hearts. Paul assumes they have some control over their heart posture toward him. 
And friends, that's not often how we think about our hearts, is it? We often talk about our hearts as those things that singularly rule and govern us, right? We're at the mercy of our own hearts. We are what we're slaves to our heart's desires. We have those expressions like the heart wants what it wants, and then we shrug our shoulders as if to say, nothing I can do about it. But for the Christian, Paul seems to think we have some control over our own hearts, Right? We're not helplessly enslaved to them, but by a conscious choice of the will and the work of the Spirit, we can actually open our hearts and make them more receptive to others, more open to others. Which means that spouses, friends, family members, maybe one of the pastors here, maybe your heart has grown cold to someone like that. Well, friend, you are, in fact, more in control of that own emotion and that experience than you might initially think. So, members of UBC, a question for you. Are there some here, are there some fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and you've closed your heart to them? You've closed it to them. Someone that you may look through as through sort of the squint of the eyes. And you maybe look at them as through a furrowed brow. Some maybe that you avoid. And when you do speak, you speak as only through sort of pursed lips. What would it look like to open your heart to them? Beginning by simply praying for them. You know, friends, some churches split over theological matters. But I think it's more common for churches to split actually over matters of the heart. A lack of affection, lack of love, where hearts hold grudges and foster bitterness. You know, I've observed, sadly, a number of church splits over the years. And occasionally they're over doctrine, yes. But as much as they're over that, I think they're even more over a lack of grace and affection. Something was said. Someone was hurt. Sides were taken. Lines were drawn. Factions formed. And the rest is history. So often, we scream heresy, right? Heresy. And heresy is real. Don't misunderstand me. And yet, so often, when we scream heresy, God might first tell us to stop and look at our own hearts. And Paul says, Corinthians, your heart is closed to me without warrant. Verse 2, we have wronged no one, Paul writes. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. That word for corrupt is often used of false teaching, immorality, taken advantage of, often in terms of financial dealings. Paul's saying in his teaching, in his living, in all of his financial dealings, and he's going to get to the collection of the saints in chapter 8. And all that, though, Paul's saying... He's above reproach. Friends, the best commendation of our words is always the faithful exercise of our lives. And that's what Paul's modeled. And yet, Paul may also be highlighting in some of these charges, he might be highlighting these in particular, in order to subtly beg the question, I'm above reproach, that's me, but, but what about those false prophets among you? Those who would peddle the word for profit, 2 Corinthians 2.17. Those who use you, Paul's going to say, to pad their pockets, 
to boost their egos, to better their standing, to build their reputation as they teach false doctrine. What about them? Are they so blameless? And yet, notice Paul's appeals not simply to the way he's lived among them, but it's also how he has in fact loved them. Verse 3, I said before that you are in our hearts. Said before. We'll remember how he called the Corinthians, what? Our letter written on our hearts, 2 Corinthians 3.2. Right? Paul only calls them to open their hearts to him because he has already opened wide his heart to them. So much so, Paul says, that, that they'll die together, verse 3, and live together, which is just a popular proverbial expression, Greco-Roman expression for friendship. So we'll use expressions of friendship like, you know, we'll be together through thick and thin or arm in arm or things like that that speak to the close bonds of friendship. Well, this living together and dying together was a way to speak to the close bonds of friendship. And yet Paul's in something interesting. He's taken this Greco-Roman expression and he's flipped it and he's put dying together first followed by living together. He's making this common cultural expression and he's turning it into a distinctly Christian one. How we die with Christ in order to one day live with Christ. Remember Corinthians, how does the Christian life work? Suffering then glory. We die and then we live. It's a picture of discipleship, the very discipleship that Paul has given himself to. Such that what? He acts with great boldness toward them, verse 4. He's filled with great pride in them. He's overflowing with comfort and joy, we read. Which sounds great to read, it sounds great to quote, but you've got to stop and seriously ask, Paul, I mean, be honest. How do you say those things about this church, this congregation in Corinth? I mean, how many difficult letters has Paul penned? Remember, this is his fourth letter. How many painful visits has he made? This is the last congregation that that local church planting network would want to do a feature on. This is the one you hide. This is the one you don't talk about. This is the one you don't want in the statistics. How can Paul say that he takes great pride in them? I think it's because Paul recognizes there is a lot of difficulty there in Corinth. They are not who they ought to be. And yet Paul is so quick to recognize, yeah, that's true, but they also aren't who they once were. Remember that refrain in 1 Corinthians 6? where Paul talks to them about the immorality of their lives and then reminds them, and yet such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified. He knows that testimony. He's recognizing evidences of grace and he's letting those gracious evidences guide his own heart with the Corinthians. Friends, I wonder how well you are able to recognize and articulate evidences of grace in other Christians. Is it hard for you to see them? Is it even harder for you to share them? Because I think the inability to see grace and to recognize grace in others is often a very good indication that you have not yourself experienced the grace of God. A heavily critical spirit. A heart that's quick to make sweeping judgments and prone to condemn That's the sign that something dangerous has happened spiritually. 
That doesn't mean we ignore sin. Paul didn't ignore sin. But in as much as he was addressing sin with the Corinthians, he was also quick to address evidences of grace and to complement them with grace. Friends, do you do that in your relationships, in your parenting, in your marriage, in your workplace? Maybe here's an exercise for you to think about, to take away with you. Think of someone for whom you struggle with. You find yourself closing your heart to them. Identify an evidence of grace in them and then share it with them. Not all this afternoon. Because what's going to happen? They're going to be like, oh, wait, you, don't, you got something wrong with me? You might want to give it a little time. But do it. Pray about it. Watch how the Lord changes your heart in that. And watch how he might change their heart as you do that. But, you know, a word of, an, of encouragement to you all as a congregation. You know, you called me as your lead pastor now seven years ago this month. Time flies, doesn't it? Some of you may not be thinking so, but it felt, it felt like it gone fast to me. <laughs> Friends, and I know this church has actually changed, in some respects, a good, a good bit in the past seven years. Yes, we still cherish the Bible. Yes, we still extol careful exposition. And yes, we still care about regenerate church membership and, and believers' baptism and things like that. Yes, that's all true. But yet I also know, again, things have changed. So we have now this 16-page worship guide. Looks very different from what we had when I first got here. We have a more structured order of service. We sing songs like, the king of love my shepherd is. And if you don't know that song, I'm not sure anyone in this state has sung that song in 100 years, if ever. But we sing it. Women now greet at the doors. They pass plates during the offertory. They read scripture in service. We treat baptisms differently, Sunday evening services differently. We actually do church discipline as a congregation. We emphasize programs and events less and personal discipling and relational evangelism more. The roles of deacons have changed. Staff has changed a good bit. And elders play a more prominent role in the life and function of the church. And I recognize I'm not what some of you hoped I would be. For some of you, I am too stuffy in East Coast. For others of you, I'm too casual and I'm too California. For some, I'm too committed to raising up pastors and I don't make enough hospital beds. For others, I am not SBC enough or maybe I'm too SBC. Why don't address political issues enough or I address them too often and too partisanly. Right? You find my vocabulary abstruse. <laughs> you were listening. That's not obtuse. Very different words. Perhaps you find my resting frown off-putting. Every time my wife prays for me, she reminds me to smile. I'm happy. I don't know. It doesn't come out sometimes. But I could keep going. Friends, in the midst of all that change... It can be easy to grow frustrated, to sow seeds of division, and I just want to speak to you and say, I'm grateful, and I'm proud of you because you've hung in there. And I know it's not always easy, and I know it can feel weird, right? You invite friends, and the lights are on, and we have 10-minute long prayers. As we, well, the lights are on, we sing. We have these long prayers, right? We confess creeds in the service, and we're not Catholic, and you try to explain that. 
We say we want our children to follow Christ, and yet we encourage children to delay to their teen years to be baptized. We love the religious freedom this country affords. Goodness, it is 4th of July weekend, and there's no American flag on this platform by intention. I know that can be weird, and I know that can be frustrating, and yet you have persevered. You have hung in there. You've sought to be humble. You've listened. You've trusted. You have assumed the best of your leaders and double-checked your Bibles. Great practices. And for that, I just want to say, I'm proud of you. And I'm grateful for you. And I pray that you would continue to open your hearts to your elders, to me, your lead pastor, as we delight to open our hearts to you. Division demands affection. But second, ministry entails affliction. Ministry entails affliction. We see this in verse 5. For even when, Paul writes, we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Now stop there in verse 5, and with a finger there in verse 5, flip back with me to chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and look at verse 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse, well actually start in verse 12. So with verse 5 in mind of chapter 7, listen to verse 12 and verse 13, chapter 2. Paul writes, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ... Even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Okay. So just notice in these two passages, notice all the similarities. Notice how each of them use words went or came. Macedonia, Titus, Both reference Paul's lack of rest. Friends, those are all verbal hooks. Those are catchwords right there that are meant to connect these two sections. So chapter 7, verse 5 literally picks up where chapter 2, verse 13 left off. Paul is now returning in verse 5 of chapter 7 to that narrative, his travel narrative. He began all the way back in chapter 2. So yes, chapter 2, verses 14, all the way through chapter 7, verse 4, that has been one long digression of Paul on the true nature of apostolic gospel ministry. And it is the longest digression in any one of Paul's letters. And it's finally come to a close. So just remember how we got here. Paul, after writing 1 Corinthians, trying to correct them, trying to admonish them, goes back. And that visit is a painful one. It doesn't go well, he says back in chapter 2, verse 1. Likely because the influential man that Paul called that church to put out in 1 Corinthians 5, they didn't want to put him out. He had his own advocates. And they stood up and they shouted Paul down. And no one stood up for Paul. And so Paul has to leave Corinth after that painful visit, a bit with his tail between his legs bruised and battered. We see that in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And Paul said as he was leaving, yeah, I'm going to come back to you. But as he left, the situation was apparently so tense, he felt his presence again might just further stir up controversy. So what does he do? He writes 
a letter, this third letter we don't have, and he sends it with Titus, and he sends Titus to take that letter and to go back to Corinth in his stead. That's the severe letter we read about beginning in chapter 7, verse 8. And they're supposed to rendezvous after that in Troas. And Paul's supposed to hear about how that whole visit went. And so Paul is there in Troas, anxiously awaiting Titus. He wants to know, Titus, how did they receive you? Did they let you read my letter to them? How did they respond to the letter? Right? Would they continue to let sin reign among them? And would they reject their apostle in favor of these false apostles? The anxiety right, of waiting, that was overwhelming for Paul. So, you know, in college, uh, my wife and I split up. We were not married at the time. We were dating, been dating for a while. We're going into our senior year. And I just, typical dumb young dude, I can't commit. I get uncomfortable every time the conversation comes up. Lots of reasons for that. Won't get into those now. But we end up separating. And she dates someone else. And there's this nasty rumor that I dated someone else all the way across the country at her school. And it's true. (laughs) You're supposed to boo me, not laugh at it, right? But then there comes this point where I try to reconnect. And I want to start to repair some broken bridges. And there's this new technology out at the time. It's called email. (laughs) Brand new. You had to go down to a computer cluster. You'd find an open computer. You'd log in. And you could type a letter and hit send. And it would get to them instantly. Novel idea at the time. Wonderful thing. So what do I do? I carefully craft an email. I pour over every word. And then I hit send. And I wait. And I wait. And I sometimes go to that computer cluster twice a day, wondering if there might be anything in my inboxes before spam, right? There's nothing coming in. It's just empty. One day turns into two days, which turns into weeks, and no response. And that relationship, in my mind, it hangs in the balance, right? My future, ever going to win this thing back? It hangs in the balance. And that anxiety, that was pretty overwhelming, Friends, Paul felt that and so much more over these Corinthians. For in some sense, his entire gospel ministry now hangs in the balance while he's waiting there in Troas for Titus. Now, obviously, eventually Aaron responded. We picked things up. It all worked out. Okay. But Paul hasn't yet heard from Titus. He's not come to Troas, and winter's coming And so what does Paul do? Paul says, you know what? I'm going to catch one of the last ships. I'm going to cross the Aegean. I'm going to go from Troas, which is in Turkey, over to northern Greece, right? Macedonia, where you get Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, those churches. I'm going to go up there, likely to Philippi. And I'm going to try to rendezvous with Titus there. Maybe Titus is there. Maybe I can get word from him. We don't know why he chose Philippi again. Maybe they discussed it. We don't know. What we do know is that upon arriving in Macedonia, his afflictions mount. No rest, he says in verse 5. But we were afflicted at every turn. So on top of all the anxiety comes affliction. Externally, right, there's some obvious clear opposition to Paul's work. Internally, he says, like the storm clouds begin to swell around his own soul as every day passes and he doesn't know. You can refer to this as some do. This is Paul's Macedonian misery. These are the dark days of the soul for Paul. And friends, everyone who ministers the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether it's a pastor, 
pastor church planter, cross-cultural worker, whatever it might be, everyone will at some point experience these dark days of the soul. You know, the famous Charles Spurgeon knew such dark days. He once confessed, somewhat to the surprise of his congregation, he confessed in the middle of a message, I am subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever gets to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. Greats like the Puritan Richard Baxter or Martin Lloyd-Jones right in the 20th century, or the great reformer Martin Luther, also prone to such darkness of soul. One time Martin Luther, in the midst of of such a darkness, Luther's wife, Katerina, she dressed in all black morning clothes, and she walked into his study, and he lifted up his head, and he saw her, and he was startled, and he said, who died? To which she responded, No one I know, but by the look of you, I assume God must have died. Takes a strong woman to say that. A good woman to a man like Martin Luther. Friends, point being, when one feels greatly for the work, when one gives themselves wholeheartedly to gospel work, when they invest so deeply into the work and the lives of others, it's inevitable that those days will come. If you're thinking about gospel ministry, maybe it's evangelism on a college campus, the cross-cultural work across the globe, you have to be prepared for such days. You must expect them, not be shocked by them. It's one of the reasons why such workers need to be tied and anchored to a local sending church. We don't want to lone ranger it. We want to anchor ourselves to a local church. Not only is it unbiblical to Lone Ranger, it it is unwise. Right? Individuals like that need as much as any pastoral care. They need a team of elders they can lean on. It's one of the reasons why sending churches need to be prepared to give pastoral care, not to just outsource it and pretend it's happening with an agency, but they're in the best position as the sending church to speak and weigh in and help and assist a worker on the field. You know, as our elders are spending time now, as I've been sharing, thinking more about missions, about what exactly missions is, about what our responsibilities as a local church are in missions, this is very much part of the conversation. What does pastoral care need to look like? How can we better care for the workers we say we support? Not just by sending an occasional short-term team to them where they have to then babysit them and figure out what to do and give to them, but that those teams that we would send would actually have an elder there, at least one who would be able to spend some time spiritually, invest in them, gather how they're doing, see how the family is, how are the kids, work through some of the stresses and strains. And as we think about that as elders, you can pray for us in that. Because all gospel ministry will entail this kind of affliction at some point. And in such dark days of the soul, friends, what will be the comfort? Right? What's Paul's comfort? What rays of light would lift his own soul? Well, we read about it right there in verse 6. It's right there that the tone turns. But God, who comforts the downcast... What a wonderful turn right there in verse 6. That brings us to the third point, right? God provides consolation. 
Thirdly, God provides consolation. So verse 6 is this bright ray of sunshine into what's otherwise been often a very dark and stormy letter. Very personal, but very hard from Paul. And notice the recurring theme. Verse 6, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. You see that recurring theme, it's that, that word comfort or encouragement perhaps. I wonder if that word reminds you, this section, does it remind you of any other section we've seen already in, in 2 Corinthians? Maybe chapter 1, the opening beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And Paul's going to keep going, using that word comfort ten different times in 1, 3 through 7. It's as if those verses in the opening are preparing us for this moment. Right here, where the the point and really the tone of the letter takes a turn and it shifts. Friends, do you want to know what God is like? Verse 6. God is a comforter. He is a comforter to the downcast. He lifts the weary head. God provides water to the parched soul. That's who God is. A comforter. And he alone is that comfort. right? Not things, Paul says. Not money, not success, not stuff, not another vacation, not another Netflix series, not alcohol, not drugs, not any of those things. Comfort comes, according to Paul, in a person. And not just any person, not a spouse. Spouses can provide comfort. Sometimes they provide great seasons of discomfort. It just happens in a sinful world. Right? Not friends, not roommates, not family. They can't finally provide the kind of comfort our souls long for. It comes through God, Paul says. God alone. So friend, if you're in need of comfort, look to God who comforts the downcast. That's the business that God is in. Look to him alone. Rest in this God alone. Trust in him alone. Depend upon him alone. He alone can comfort you, and what's wonderful is he can do it regardless of your circumstances. God doesn't need to change your circumstances in order to comfort you. No one else can do that. God can do that. That is an awesome God. Yeah, Maybe you're here this morning, and you want just that. You want to know this comfort for the downcast. Maybe you're overwhelmed by sorrow. Maybe you're overwhelmed by the sin in your own life. You're looking and maybe see the need for this God. You know, that's you. Interestingly, Old Testament Israel found themselves in a very similar state. When they were exiled in Babylon, God would speak through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Your warfare is ended. Your iniquity is pardoned. And then Isaiah is going to go on and he's going to describe this ministry of a suffering servant who we clearly know from the New Testament to be none other than Jesus Christ. Because 
True comfort begins by being reconciled to God, forgiven by God, restored to God, and that only comes through this ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus alone pardons our iniquity. He alone ends our enmity with God. On the cross, Jesus would take all the sins of those who would turn to him and trust in him and repent of those sins. And then Jesus would rise again from the grave. He'd ascend to the right hand of the Father. And there he intercedes for them. And he comforts them. Friend, you can know that comfort today. By turning from yourself and sin. And entrusting yourself to this God and his son Jesus Christ. I pray you would do that. Because God comforts the downcast. But notice even more specifically, how does God do that? Well, sometimes, okay, we know he does that through his word, Psalm 119.50. This is my comfort and affliction that your promises give me life. Praise God. Sometimes he will comfort us through the ministry of the Spirit. But here, notice God comforts Paul. How? Through the ministry, actually, of another person. That's how he comforts him. God is the source of all comfort. Titus is the means of that comfort. Paul writes, he was comforted, verse 6, by the coming of Titus. And not only Titus, we read, but he was comforted, verse 7, by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. So the Corinthians themselves in this chain of comfort are part of the means of Paul's own comfort. It's part of what I want you to see, member of UBC, right? Christian, but particularly member of UBC. You are meant to be a means of comfort to others. That's exactly the point Paul was trying to make back in chapter 1, verse 4. Perhaps because he was anticipating this turn in the letter. We receive comfort so as to be a comfort to others. So how are you seeking to be a comfort to others? Right? We read in Job's great distress of his own soul. We read that three of Job's friends came to him for a purpose. Job 2.11, to show him sympathy and comfort him. And yet, if you know the story of Job, by the time you get to Job 16, verse 2, Job is more dejected than ever. And he says, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters you are. Brutal. You don't want that said about you. Do you ever have the sense you're a miserable comforter? Do you ever have the sense maybe you're a lot more like Job's friends, even if you don't mean to be? Friends, what did, what did Job's friends do wrong? Well, they often ran their mouth when they should have listened instead of sitting with Job in his pain and just learning when to shut their mouth. They often ran it and opened it and they spoke. And when they spoke, what did they do? They didn't tend to turn him to the true and right character of God. They tended to offer him more the sort of wisdom of this world, right? Not the truth of God's word. That's not regularly where they went. Friend, that is a great way to be a miserable comforter. Part of providing comfort to others is the wisdom of knowing when to speak and when just to sit in someone's pain with them. It's knowing what to say, right? Not trite cliches. You know it will get better. God has a plan. Those are all true things. But God's plan may be for them more suffering. It may only get better on the other side. They need to know this one and the character of this one who is what? 
close to the brokenhearted, saves those crushed in spirit from Psalm 34. They need to know him as Paul has described the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. 1-3 of 2 Corinthians. They need to know when the cares of my heart are many, you fix my circumstances. That's not what it says. Psalm 94-19. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. So notice part of how we comfort others as Paul is comforted is actually by repenting of our own sin. You want to be a good comforter to others? Maybe it begins by just repenting of your own sins, by chasing after righteousness. This is how Paul is brought comfort from the Corinthians, such that now they mourn, presumably over their own sin, and over the way they've treated and abused this one, Paul says, who gladly was willing to be spent for them, 2 Corinthians 12. And it's only now that we learn in chapter 7, verse 7, that Paul's severe letter had its desired effect. Why did Paul wait that long to tell the Corinthians that? Oh, we can conjecture. But the key thing is that Paul hasn't lost them. In that moment, we learn Paul has won the majority back to him. Now, how that happened, what that looked like, that's going to be for next week as we finish chapter 7 chapter 7 and close the first half of the book. But friends, such divisions don't always turn out like they're turning out at 2 Corinthians. Sometimes church divisions persist. Sometimes they end poorly. You know, it was this very weekend, back in 1750, that Jonathan Edwards preached his farewell sermon to his congregation in Northampton, Massachusetts. He had pastored there for 25 glorious years. And during that time in the American colonies, you had the first great awakening, a wonderful revival. And Edwards was often at the very center of that revival. Like, we might think of him as a sort of celebrity pastor, though they had no such things and no notion of that. He was known. He was deeply respected. He was loved. But Edwards came to understand from Scripture that the only Christians who could properly partake of the Lord's Supper were actually Christians. Those who had repented of their sins believed upon Jesus. His grandfather didn't believe that. His grandfather believed any were welcome at the table. It was open. And fencing that table, denying some in that congregation access to the table, that infuriated them. Perhaps in some of the same ways the Corinthians were infuriated by Paul saying that man in 1 Corinthians 5, that influential member, he can't come. He needs to be put out. Now, that wasn't all there was. Some found Edwards cool and aloof. Others think found that he lacked pastoral tact. And so by a vote of over 90%, they fired him. Now, when he gives this farewell sermon, right, this weekend back in 1750, you might expect him to launch into a defense of his ministry. Those of you at the Southern Baptist Convention heard someone do just that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't launch into a defense of his ministry. He doesn't press into his detractors. His sermon's a marvelous sermon of restraint and trust in the providence and mercy of God as he looks forward to a day when all that is broken will be mended and all that is lost will be restored and regained. And much of that sermon he takes right from the book of 2 Corinthians. 
Because their congregation may have closed their heart to their pastor. But Edwards hadn't closed his heart to them. And yet what's most remarkable, I think, is what one of the witnesses who was there, one of those on the council who was at the center of things, it was his observation. And that final week, as they would fire Edwards and the verdict would be handed over, this observer would say of Edwards that he received the shock unshaken. I never saw, he says, the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week. But he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. What a wonderful thing to be said of you. That your happiness is out of the reach of your enemies. What a glorious commendation. Because Edwards knew what it was like to entrust himself to the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. The one who comforts the downcast. The one who brings a kind of otherworldly joy. Joy untouchable, joy unshakable in the midst of great affliction. Friend, do you know this God? Let's pray.